0: Hello and welcome. My name is Jo Frost and here with my co-host Peter Linus, this is Being Human. Today we are absolutely delighted to welcome back. Karen Swallow-Prior. You are a professor of English literature, author, speaker, social commentator, notorious KSP on Twitter. It's wonderful to have you back with us. Karen, welcome. Thank you. It's wonderful to be back with you. So for listeners who may be less familiar with you, you live over in the States, tell us a couple of stories that help frame who you are and where you come from.
1: Oh, wow. Stories already. Okay. Well, I have been for over 30 years, an English professor at primarily Christian institutions. And so I feel called first to be a teacher, especially of literature. I love literature. And so my writing and my speaking, and even most of my tweeting comes out of my love of literature and how it applies to life and to the church. And so that's who I am and what I do. A couple of stories. Oh my. Um, well, I will, you know, I, I'll just share, I'll share what I'm thinking about, you know, right now, I guess. Yes, um, please. Yesterday, I just had the five-year anniversary of my getting hit by a bus in a crosswalk. And I was hospitalized. I was in a city there to attend a conference, go to a meeting. I was at walking, uh, didn't have the right of way, the bus did, and so I was hospitalized with numerous injuries, couldn't walk for several months, and I took a run yesterday. I have been (laughs) running, I'm feeling great, and I'm very thankful that five years after this very bizarre incident, I'm doing well, and it's something I've kind of seen as a metaphor in my life we'll talk about that more later but yeah that's just what I'm a story that's been present with me as as that kind of um, traumatic anniversary has come and gone.
0: So at the moment you've been writing uh, you've got a new book coming out Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about where that's come from what's inspired you and hopefully what you're ultimately trying to communicate with it?
1: Yes. My next book It's titled The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. And for me, I'm a slow book writer. So I had the idea for this book sort of germinating in late 2018, 2019. And it just takes me a while to write a book with all the other things that I do. And the genesis of it really came from my teaching. I teach British literature primarily, and especially the literature of the 18th and 19th century. I love your country. (laughs) Um, And one of the periods I end up teaching a lot is Victorian literature and teaching in evangelical environments to students who have primarily grown up in evangelical culture and subculture we would go through this literature, study the period and its values like family and morality and hard work and progress and you know, social improvement. We would study these things and my students would sometimes see that this, the same values of the Victorian age were the ones that they grew up with. And in particular, there are several of them, but in particular would be the Victorian attitudes toward sexual purity for women. <laughs> and we would study literature that exposed that the hypocrisy of the double standard or elevated women to a pedestal, I'll even talk in the book about the angel in the house, which was a powerful mm-hmm. metaphor of the time. So essentially, I just started to think you know, there's so much of evangelical culture that is more Victorian than it is biblical. And that, you know, that is the center of the book. And it just sort of unfolded and spread out and got bigger from there.
2: <laughs> now, I'm going to try and jump in If people. I'm at a store cover. I've been <laughs> banished to a store cover to get a better <laughs> sound quality. So I'm hovering there. But I'm really interested in what you're saying about evangelical is possibly the first word that people immediately have a thing about. So we all already probably have a, a UK versus US understanding. But when you use that term and, and in your book, I suppose curious as to what what you think that means and how much that's already fitted then with US um, culture around that.
1: Yeah, no, I'm so glad you asked that question. And I actually do spend a considerable amount of time in the beginning of the book talking about that term because obviously it's a term that means different things in different places around the world, but it even means different things in different places in America too. So it's a very contested term and has become contested and controversial primarily in America because of the last couple of presidential elections where the term began being used as a kind of a polling category or a survey data label. And it, so a lot of people are disavowing the term or they use the term and they aren't really evangelical in a historical sense. And so I understand that it's a term that is um, troublesome for some. And so I draw heavily, even in my own life, I have always, and in the book, I talk about what's called the Bebbington quadrilateral. David Bebbington is a church historian who studied the 300 years of evangelicalism that began at, you know, in England, spread throughout the transatlantic. And he's like historians do and looking back and saying, okay, what are the qualities that define this movement that was not limited to a denomination? It was not limited to a country. And so he identifies four qualities that are fairly consistent across all of these communities. And they are basically an emphasis on the Bible as God's word and authority for our lives, biblicism, an emphasis on the sacrificial crucifixion of Christ for our salvation, centrism and conversionism. I mean, the importance of individual conversion as opposed to just sort of having a nominal Christian Christianity, because you were born in a Christian country, having that conversion experience. And then finally activism, which can manifest in many ways in the peak of evangelicalism in the 18th and 19th century, it saw it manifested in, at least in England, in the abolition of slavery and other social and political changes that expanded rights for more people. And we still have that activist spirit today. So I would say whether you call yourself an evangelical or not, and that's, you know, I, can respect decisions both ways. If you are of a Christian tradition, denomination, church community that emphasizes the Bible, the Christ crucifixion for our salvation, individual conversion, and wanting to make a difference in the world, then I think that's what evangelicalism is.
0: I think, and I think it's that activism question insight. That is probably bubbling underneath so many of these conversations that we seem to be involved in this cultural conversation, bringing our faith and who Jesus is and who he's calling us to be into the public spaces. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Why do you think it is evangelicalism in particular and evangelicals that seek to engage in culture and in cultural conversations? And how and where and why do you see some of these cultural analysis and insights and engagements bubbling up?
1: Oh, I just love that question. And I don't think I've been asked that question before. And I think it's really important just to, you know, so that people know who I am and where I'm coming from and to be completely transparent. I'm a born activist. My strongest spiritual gift is prophecy. I think that's a kind of activism, just kind of truth telling. And so whether I call myself an evangelical or not, this is really a lot of who I am. So I come from that. I have a very activist background that we talked about, I think, on our mm-hmm. on your last interview of me. At the same time, (laughs) in this moment where there is so much animosity, so much hostility, so much hatred, so much polarization, so much destructiveness, both within the church community and then between church communities and the culture, it gives me pause. It does give me pause. And That's where I'm coming from. But to answer this question, activism is in the DNA of evangelicalism, because it begins with our belief that each individual needs to come to know Jesus Christ as personal savior and be born again. And there's no complacency in that, you know, whether you're the kind of person who just goes, you know, goes knocking on doors aggressively, <laughs> talking to strangers, or you just want to share over coffee with a close friend, we, what we believe about salvation in Christ is something that demands to be shared. And so that takes action on our part, regardless of how we do it. And we also believe that that conversion is a transformative experience for us as individuals. And if it changes who we are and the way we live, then that in itself is a kind of activism and the, and it inherently suggests taking that action out into the world. Um, so I think you almost can't take the activism out of the evangelical, but we certainly can ask ourselves in, you know, wherever we are, whenever we're living, what kind of activism is best, is prudent, is wise, is effective for here and now? And that's a question I think a lot of evangelical. You know, I mean, human beings don't always ask enough questions. Um, and so that's a question maybe we don't ask ourselves enough.
0: Hmm.
2: And so I'd love to piggyback off that activism point because I think what excited me about your latest book, The Evangelical Imagination, and the synergy for us with being human was again this engagement between the God story and the cultural stories, this activism in this cultural moment. So you've taken on two big terms. You've told us what's an evangelical contested term, but then like about our imaginations and our engagement culture. So one of the things you talked about, Charles Taylor's language of the social imaginary, which for many people isn't maybe an immediate thing we resonate with, and sometimes I think the perception is that we as evangelical Christians aren't that interested in the imagination. We're not that interested in culture. We want to separate out you' are saying, hey, let's absolutely engage, which is one of the things that to you. so do you want to say a little bit more about even that language Yes
1: I think that there's a great bridge between these two these two questions because active and I'm trying to come up with a metaphor here on the quick and I am not but activism is the end result of, and what and and we as evangelicals tend to to think about that a lot like how should we live and how should other people live and what policies should we enact? but we don't always think about what's driving our decisions about how we should live or our visions of how we should live and how we should enact those. And so I do draw heavily in my thinking in both my life and in this book on Charles Taylor, as you mentioned, and also the work of James K.A. Smith, who, you know, draws on kind of an Augustinian understanding of, of being human, is that as one title of his book says, we are what we love and that we are desiring creatures before we are thinking creatures. Evangelicals tend to emphasize biblical worldview, which I love. I love thinking about how the Bible can teach us how to live our lives and how to apply biblical principles to whatever situations we might find ourselves in. And yet thinking the right thing and coming up with the right answer is not what's going to make us live as christians and to follow christ as we are supposed to we actually have to desire that before we can even begin to do that and so the imagination is where all those desires and visions kind of cook right they they, In the imagination, our individual imagination, and in what Charles Taylor calls our social imaginary, which is a kind of collective pool of pre-conscious myths, stories, legends, and ideas that we inherit, really, from our culture. It's like the water we're swimming in and we don't even realize it. It's our our individual imaginations and our collective social imaginaries that give us all these visions and ideas that we aren't necessarily thinking about, but that become underlying assumptions from which we build our correct biblical answers to this question or that question.
0: really fascinating and I think that whole question around the collective imagination and I I must admit when people first started talking about this I was like is this a make-believe is this a pretend idea and it's blatantly not that it's that kind of mental narrative and structure and actually what I found really interesting is in the introduction to your new book you talk about the house and the structure and the joists and the scaffolding of our understanding our worldview and our engagement. And we use a very similar metaphor. We are talking about the foundations on which our house and our society and our culture live. And we talk about subsidence that cracks those foundational uh, faults that are causing our house to, to crumble and to fall. And you use almost exactly the same analogy. And I think we're both trying to talk about this same idea that there is a fallibility, a weakness in our cultural and social imaginings, which is resulting in crisis, whether it's an identity crisis within the evangelical community or whether it's in our engagement in cultural conversations and activism. That's a long introduction to a question. What do you see as causing some of those cracks and some of those structural issues, and what specifically are you noticing as problems within the evangelical community in the US at the moment?
1: Yeah, you know, I have a front row seat having taught evangelical young people for several generations now, to what they're experiencing and living. I mean, I'm living it too, but I grew up apart from, I grew up in a Christian home, but apart from really a culture of evangelicalism um and but but because we live in a global world now i you know i think what's happening in america and is also spreading around the world we could point to many different cracks but i want to give some specific illustrations to talk about explain better what I'm talking about. So obviously we are facing crises of of racism and sexism and abuse and misogyny and, and corruption of power and institutions that have wielded their power poorly or even abusively. And so those are kind of the big ones, but on a more personal individual level, what I see happening is especially among, I say young people, but they're now many of them in their 30s and 40s, they're leading the way. So much has been entangled with Christian teaching in the culture, the evangelical subculture that they grew up in. So if, for example, and this is a common one, this is one that gets talked about a lot, if young people were taught that maintaining their sexual purity before marriage was the best way to make sure they had a happy healthy marriage and family life and sex life and that's what christianity is and that's what christianity teaches and they you know they obey that they follow that and then discover that that promise didn't hold it wasn't true then because they were taught this is christianity discovering that this thing that they were taught is not true gives them two choices, either reject it all because they haven't separated it out or start to do that untangling and separation say, no, well, what does Christianity in the Bible really teach about our sexuality and these relationships? And, you know, is there some sort of reward quotient that that exists or not? And so that's a very common example that I've seen. I've seen young people just either reject the thing often reject the faith because they can't do that disentangling. They think everything is a lie because one thing turned out to be not quite true or or worse. And so that's a crisis. That's a crisis for an individual. It's a crisis for a lot of people when they get together and start sharing these stories across the internet and start beginning to doubt the validity of everything that they've been taught. And so that's also an example that is part of the imagination. Sometimes we aren't even told things explicitly, but the way that we're told them, you know, when I was growing up, again, I don't remember anyone exactly saying this, but I got the idea as a young person growing up in the church that if I really loved the Lord, I would either become a pastor or a missionary. Hmm. And since I was a woman and Baptist, I wasn't going to be a pastor. Maybe I could be a pastor's wife. But I had no desire to be a missionary. I had no desire. No, I, I don't even, I I don't like traveling. And I just kind of decided, well, I must not really love the Lord mm. because I don't want to be these things. And so I, it wasn't necessarily that someone sat down and told me that, but that was the message I received. And it formed my imagination of what the Christian life must be like, the good Christian life. And I couldn't see myself in it. And so I just thought, well, I guess I'm just not a good Christian. And, you know, God's providence and grace and mercy showed, you know, disabused me of that notion eventually, but it took a long time. And so I can imagine how much worse it is when it deals with things that are more extreme or more personal and more soul crushing. And so that's, you know, that's how the imagination can work in these things.
2: I want to ask you a question that I think is coming off that is in my mind. You talk about using the term like conversion. And one of the things that really interests me, you have this line about how it can look so like self-help. So again, something of what we have taught people, essentially a self-help gospel, and at some points it's actually really hard to distinguish between conversion, radical encounter with Jesus, and kind of just help yourself. I'd love to hear you just say a little bit more about that, how we have confused Christian language, biblical language, but then in cultural language around that in ways that have sold people short, I think, if I've understood you right, then I, I would agree. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I have a whole chapter on conversion because conversion is a metaphor. Now it's a real thing too. Like all language is metaphorical. And this is something I think that at least in my more conservative and even fundamentalist Christian circles, people are uncomfortable to Thinking about or or realizing. So, conversion is a real thing. It's a real event that happens in the life of a Christian to be a Christian. And yet, it's also a metaphor. So, it has all these layers and resonances. And we have like examples uh, in our art and culture and media of different kinds of conversions. And we're fascinated with the idea of conversion. We're fascinated with the idea of, of being kind of a before and after story, you know, even like weight loss programs will show you the before and after or muscle building programs before and after we love dramatic befores and afters. And of course, there is no more dramatic before and after than becoming a new creature, which is a work of the Lord in our lives that is not our own. And yet, as you suggested, Peter, there are things we can do to kind of Propel the story or make it more dramatic. And so I think there are a few ways that that plays out. One example I give in the book is we can develop a desire through our distorted imaginations to have a dramatic conversion story. And that can lead to those of us who don't have dramatic conversion stories feeling less than or like our lives are, you know, are not as powerful a testimony, which is completely wrong. As someone I quote in the book says, no parent wants their child to have a dramatic conversion story, right? Um and another thing it can lead to is just elevating and romanticizing dramatic stories so much that those are the ones we share the most or put on the platform the most or even embellish to make them more dramatic and you know that's not an unusual thing that happens I don't think unfortunately but it was certainly a hurtful experience in my life as I share briefly in the book to have someone who was exposed for having done that and that I didn't want to believe at first that that he had done that and of course he's responsible for that but at the same time we have to think about the kind of culture we create that encourages that we don't want to encourage it because it's just not a true thing. And then in a later chapter, I talk about the whole notion of improvement, which goes all the way back to early modern England and had originally to do with like improving lands and holdings, but became through the modern age and through a lot of historical factors, something that became part of individuals, like improving ourselves, improving our lives, which is great. I I am so glad that people can improve their lives and that I can improve my life. Yet, we see it kind of funneling into modern and contemporary Christianity and particularly evangelicalism into this whole movement of self-help. It's an entire industry, in fact. And at some point we have to ask, are we just trying to help ourselves and are we not relying on the Lord and are we not letting the Lord transform our, our lives because we're too busy, like doing, following the next latest and greatest steps to Success or or whatever. Now, this is part of not just evangelical culture. This is part of modern consumerist culture. But that's the whole point is that we have to distinguish between what is really biblical and what is cultural.
0: I think we're probably coming into land, which means I want to circle back to the idea that you mentioned at the beginning about how you've seen your being hit by a bus as a metaphor and the fact that we are celebrating five years of your recovery from that. And it strikes me, I'd love to know a little bit more about what the bus is a metaphor of, Mm -hmm. but also um, imagination for me is imagining what isn't but could be. And we're talking about this idea of self-improvement that we actually really long for what isn't, but what could be. But in Christ, we say actually the transformation is is in and through him rather than in our own strength and our own perseverance. So what what could we be imagining? What do we what are we seeing? Whether it's potentially some of the stuff that we've seen reported out of Asbury and some of the outpourings that we've noticed and that transformation. What are we starting to imagine that could be possible? And what gives you hope? So metaphor, hope, imagination, lots of things that you could pull in there. Off you go. So,
1: yeah, now, and again, let me preface, I'm a good, solid Baptist person. So what I'm about to say might sound a little bit more not very Baptist in the sense of talking about some spiritual warfare and spiritual realities that sometimes we don't as speaking as a Baptist that we don't like to talk about, but I actually was thinking a lot and reading up on Ezekiel recently. I mean, one of the weirdest books in the Bible was some of the weirdest stuff, right? I mean, Ezekiel was a prophet and God instructed him to do all kinds of bizarre things as sign acts to God's people, like really metaphors, right? He was like acting, doing little dramas, acting out, God's coming judgment in ways that were just very literal. I mean, they're symbolic, but literal, like eating food cooked on dung, which is really gross. And yet that was like, that's the point is this is what your lives are going to be if you disobey God. And so I'm seeing more and more as I study just metaphor and how they work in language and imagination, but also spiritual realities as the Bible teaches us about them. And we know, we know that angels and demons are real and they are all around us. And we know that the natural world is a manifestation of spiritual realities. We know that the way that God created the world and the way the universe operates is a reflection of not just natural law, but the natural law that reflects who he is as God. And so when I was hit by a bus five years ago, it was actually in the middle of turmoil and chaos in my denomination over sexual abuse and mistreatment of women. Now, I was not someone at that time that would come to change who considered myself to be abused or oppressed as a woman in the church, but I was speaking up for my sisters who had experienced that and could not, for various reasons, speak up. And so it was right literally in the, in the very hours of a, of a peak moment of decision in my denomination over addressing this, that I would stepped into the crosswalk and was hit by a bus. And some of the women that I was supposed to meet with and couldn't meet with told me that they saw in that you know a metaphor for the way women had been thrown under the bus by the church for many many years now you know i'm not going to say what happens spiritually and in the realms that i can't see but what i can say is that metaphor and that experience more importantly that experience i chose to allow god to show me what I believe he wanted me to see and learn from that experience. Now it was my fault, you know, mm-hmm. that was clear. It was, I, you know, I don't think the devil made me do it, but you know, I, I step but whatever, well, for whatever reasons that it happened, I think God had things to show me. And I understand things about trauma and pain and recovery that I thought I understood because I read a lot, <laughs> but now I understand because I've actually experienced it. Mm-hmm. And so I think Things don't have to be that dramatic, but there are sign acts around us every day. This world, this human life is a sign act. Being human is a sign act. God put us in this world and in these earthly bodies in order to prepare us for eternity. So what can we learn from this physical material world and what can we use our imaginations for to help us better understand the way that the literal and the metaphor teach us about God? And I just think that we have to be more aware and, and dig beneath the surface and not you know, not see things as just literal or metaphorical, but to see them more as anagogues, as kind of a ladder of meaning that can... Help our our finite understandings to better reflect on and understand
0: and commune with God, having very, very at a distance traveled with you because I think you came up into my feed as you were recovering. So mm-hmm. that was literally my first encounter with you. Um but what I love about it is is the truth that you've drawn from it in recognizing that that women and people, In our communities and in our churches are being thrown under the bus. And that we need to do something about that as activists, as people who care deeply about transformation and about hope and about the promise of Jesus, we do not tolerate that kind of injustice, especially within the church. But equally, that the bus didn't get the last word, but actually, five years on, there is recovery, there is new life, there is hope, there is transformation, there is restoration. And actually people's trauma and the injustices that people have experienced don't need to be the end of somebody's story that actually Jesus can and does redeem all things. And I think that's for me, even just seeing your tweet yesterday saying five years on, I'm on a run, is the hope it does stretch my imagination and my belief that what we see today need not be our stories of tomorrow. And that is a really beautiful message.
1: I can't improve on that. Thank you. Thank you.
2: <laughs> well, look, Karen, we are so thankful to you for your time. Uh, what I think we both love is that you take culture really seriously, take the God story really seriously, and you don't just critique it. You're trying to always strive for how do we do better engagement. Where You've mentioned the book, uh, An Evangelical Imagination, come out.
1: The easiest place besides Twitter, uh, which is at KS Prior at k-s-p-r-i-o-r is my website karenswallaprior.com it's a simple website but it's an easy way to find me and see what's going on and but twitter is probably much more up to date because i'm on it too often
0: thank you so much karen and we reserve the right if we can to ask you back another time but thank you so much for your time today thank you so thanks so much for listening to today's episode we really hope that you've enjoyed it If this is your first time to Being Human, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite platform for podcasts. You can find out more about us on beinghumanlens.com. You can follow us on Twitter or on Instagram. But until next time, take care and God bless.